Welcome everyone to Goddard in the World podcast. My guest today is Vince DiPersio, a graduate of the RUP program. Vince is an award-winning documentary film writer, director, and producer. He has been nominated for three Academy Awards for his films Blues Highway, Death on the Job, and Crack USA, County Under Siege, and was nominated for an Emmy Award for Five American Kids, Five American Handguns. His film, The Kennedy Detail, about the Secret Service agents who were with JFK the day he was assassinated, is streaming now on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and Discovery+. Plus. Welcome, Vince. Hi. Hi, how are you today? Good. Good. Uh, Vince, you're coming from beautiful uh, Santa Cruz. <laughs> we are um, on opposite coasts right now. It is 20 something degrees outside. <laughs> oh, really? But it's Christmas in New York. You know, it's hard to beat. That's true. That's true. In the background, you might hear Olive, uh, Vince's dog. <laughs> what kind of puppy is she? A rescue from San Francisco. Yeah. So sweet. So Vince, how did you get into documentary? You know, I, I'm a vet. I was in the army. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I met an API wire for photo photographer and he got me into still photography. So oh, then when cool. I went out, I went to the community college of Philadelphia for uh, a while to take a photography course to get an associate's degree in photography. Okay. Take a documentary class as part of it. And the second I put images and sound together, I was hooked. That was it. Mm, that's amazing. So, so you started doing that after you got out of the army. Yep. In what, what year was that? 68. There were still dinosaurs running around when I got out. Where were you stationed in the army? Like what, what did you do? I was overseas. I was mostly in Korea. Okay. Okay. I fell in love with Korea and Koreans. Yeah. How long were you over there? 18 months. Okay. And then you were, then you came back to Philly. Yeah. Came back to Philly. Philly. I, I love, I love documentary. I love documentary film and photography. I, I, I don't do film, um, but I, I do photography and um, I find it, super powerful. <laughs> um, did you, do you ever work in like n- news or like journalism? You know, I wanted to be a journalist and mm-hmm. I, I did a show with Peter Jennings uh, oh, wow. about the failure of the war on drugs. It was a really good show called lost in Bolivia. Mm. And I got a, a really good look at that world. And I did, I decided I was better off as an independent filmmaker. There okay. was so much stress you know, I was working, uh, I spent the whole summer at the Empire Hotel, you know, and uh, they were on the Upper West Side at the time, and they had a, a building, and there were, must have been 70 editing rooms that could all go live to the air. Oh, and wow. Big story broke, you know, to watch those guys in action and try to get stuff up in the, you know, it was amazing. They can go live from any editing room, but the pressure was intense. And I, I also felt like I can go a little deeper, you know, in a dock. Yeah. You can take like a longer view. Yeah. 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 When you first got into documentary, what were the what were the things that sort of attracted you? Like, you know, you you had just gotten out of the army. Was it like like war stories or vet stories? Um, 
or other other things? It's a funny. I mean, I, I actually I threw my motorcycle in the back of a U-Haul van and came to California because I wanted to be a feature film director. Okay. Screenwriter. And I and I was pretty lucky, you know, right? I went to AFI and when I got out of AFI, I got into Sundance. I got the film made. Uh, then I made a second little indie film. And that world is so cutthroat and so dark and so just difficult that I wanted to do something else. And a friend of mine was working, had just done a documentary at HBO. And I asked him if he could get me in for a meeting. And I went in and we actually partnered on the first doc. And I mean, the reason I wanted to be a future filmmaker in the first place was because I came from a really poor neighborhood in Philly. I mean, the house I grew up in was 10 feet wide and 16 feet deep. Mm. And five of us lived in it. You know, it was kind of like the, the, the lanes in Limerick in, a, in an Irish novel or something. <laughs> and, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to speak for those working class people. Okay. And so both my future films were kind of about that. But then I thought, you know, I think I can do something better with documentaries. And at the time, the crack epidemic had just started. And all the coverage was that it was an African-American problem in bad neighborhoods. And I knew that wasn't true because the poor neighborhood that I grew up in Philly, there were a lot of white kids that were on crack. And so Mm -hmm. I went to HBO and I said, I want to do a film about you know, crack, the crack epidemic. And Sheila Nevins, who was who ran the doc department at HBO at the time, and who, who's a genius, who was responsible for so many Academy Award winning documentaries, mm. said, who cares? You know, the news media is all over it. Tell me something different. And I said, suppose we made a film where all everybody was white, all the crack kids were white. And she said, if you can find that, you have a film. And so... Uh, I did a little research and I found a, a rehab place in South Florida. Oh. And, uh, and I went down with a little camera just to meet the guy and to look around. And it was it was amazing. South Florida was overrun with crack and there were surfer kids. There were little blonde, you know, cutie pies, 14 year olds. Uh, and I went back with the little bit of footage that I, I shot and Sheila said, go for it. And we made the film and we got nominated for an Oscar. And I was like, I like this world a lot better. Mm. It's a smaller crew. Mm-hmm. It's really like being in a band. And then at the end of the day, you know, you have a lot more control over it. There's not a network and a studio and all that kind of stuff, you know, and, and I was hooked. Yeah. Wow. That's, a, that's amazing. So that's, that's crack USA County under siege is yeah. the, is the film. I, I think that's really incredible. Because even now, the perception, uh, like the the overriding, like, you know, overwhelming perception of communities that have been affected by crack um, historically is is that they that it's black communities or black Latino communities. And I like that you sought out a narrative <laughs> that is uh, that upends that dominant story, media story, and that Sheila Evans like championed that as well. Yeah, she she was really brave and really brilliant. Yeah, she was terrific. Yeah, was I I think that is one of the gifts that um, documentary 
can do, like what you're saying about uh, documentary being able to go deeper into a subject. I can't even imagine what it would be like now to to be to get into journalism with a like 24 hour news cycle, like just the pressure of having to like have a take. (laughs) Amazing lack of respect for journalists. I mean, journalists are more journalists have been killed in the last two years than in the 20 years previous. Yeah. So where did Goddard come into this? this was but you went to Goddard prior to uh, getting into documentary yeah. film, yeah. right? Yeah. What happened was, you know, I, you know, I went to the community college mm-hmm. and I was uh, and I was very eclectic about the classes I took, you know, a bunch of writing literature. I stayed away from math, which was always my weak point. And I, you know, and I managed to get into squeeze out an associate's degree. And then I was looking for a four year degree. And again, you know, coming from a poor family, nobody was going to pay for it. You know, I had a, a GI bill and I honestly, I didn't want to take the SATs mm-hmm. and I didn't want to, I, I hated the first year, first couple of year curriculum in every college I looked at. Okay. And I was in the counselor's office at the community college in Philly and I pulled out this brochure and on the brochure at that time was a, was a, was like a hippie chick in a peasant dress, you know, <laughs> with sunlight streaming around her. Mm. And I, I, so I, I opened it up and I started reading and I was like, no grades, make your own cur- curriculum, mm-hmm. you know? And I just, I just sent them a box of stuff. I sent them a box of my photos, a couple of short stories I had worked on my first short film. I just mm. put it all in a box and sent it to Goddard as my application instead of filling. I didn't even fill out an application form. Wow. And Goddard at the time was, you know, it, it was a, an amazing place. And I got a letter back saying, we'd love you to come. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I went to Goddard and studied film with uh, Walter Ungerer, who kept all the equipment at his house and wouldn't let any students use it. Use it. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, you could not get your hands on. I had to leave and go to the back to the community college where there was film gear to make a film. Mm. But the. Uh, but the writing faculty at Goddard, I mean, coming, I had a lot of really awful examples of men in my life. Hmm. And at the time, there was Jack Pulaski and, and Paul Nelson were the two of the main writing teachers. Okay. And I gravitated, gravitated towards them. And Jack, particularly, being a, growing up in a rough house in New York, hmm. grabbed me by the collar and said, we're going to get through this together. And those, those, those guys changed my life. Wow. That was kind of a wild wild man at that time and he really steadied me you know Mm -hmm. what what kind of writing were they encouraging you towards well jack is an amazing fiction writer you know he's written a bunch of books himself Uh, he's still at it amazing and so i was trying fiction you know okay and and i was getting better and better at it but it wasn't it didn't it wasn't quite satisfying you know and i had this big dream. I was going to be a, you know, the new Morton Scorsese, you know, I was going to come out to Hollywood and make these feature films. And, and I made the first two, like I said, and it was a rough road and they were really well received. I got a review in Variety calling me the, the American Bunuel. I still don't know what that means, but. Oh, interesting. Sounded I, that flat sounds flat. like surreal, right? <laughs> but, uh, but then, like I said, I did that first doc and I, I just, I, I was gone. You know, mm. there's something about getting half a dozen people in a van and, you know, 
being there to ch- let people channel their lives through you. It's mm-hmm. so rewarding and so much fun and so creative. You know, you know, that's where I've been. Yeah. What, what, what were what were your first feature films about? One was about a kid from the neighborhood who uh-huh. gets trapped and sent to Vietnam. Yeah. And the other one was about and they were both they, they both centered on interracial relationships. I had a thing. Okay. Even then, I was trying to, you know, I was trying to break down the, the racial barrier. Mm-hmm. So I hooked up with an actor named Leon, who's pretty famous. He was in Cool Runnings and oh. the Five Heartbeats and Waiting to Exhale. And he played okay. with Richard, you know, uh, and we bonded. And he played basically me in the hmm. story. So I'd write the story for me. And then I would cast Leon, who was black, mm-hmm. just to make a point. That you know, he had the same life as me. He had a okay. much better life than me, actually. But the, <laughs> you know, yeah. So, so you know, there was they were both socially conscious in a way, but they were kind of fun and trippy and surreal, mm-hmm. and it was fun, and I really loved it. But like I said, the entourage that comes with it, and the amount of hassle that comes with it, and mm-hmm. you know, running this machine that has four hundred people as opposed to six, you know, riding around the Mississippi Delta looking for bluesmen. Oh, it was just a lot more fun. Yeah. That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah. In a, in a world pre Google, <laughs> how would you find your documentary subjects? You know, it was, yeah. it was, it bothered me the, at first, like uh, the first one was, you know, crack USA. Yeah. And the second one was about, it was called Death on a Job, also nominated for an Oscar. And that was about uh, companies that kill their employees through ne- negligence. Mm. And, you know, coming from blue collar factory workers, you know, I wanted to, and I found out that there was only one person in the whole country dealing with that. Mm. And, uh, and so we decided to make a film about that and uh, it turned out to be quite the adventure chased by Pinkerton's you know, in Texas, because we're getting too close to the oil field, you know, oil refineries, you know, but uh, it was a pretty explosive film. There were, we focused on five stories where clearly the companies were negligent and they killed their employees, you know. So that was the second one. And then uh, I'm a mediocre guitar player and I've always been interested in the blues. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know, I, I want to tell the story of the blues. And uh, we went to Nat Geo and I, I sat in a room with like, 20 people with notepads and their first question was what you're a white guy what are you going to mm-hmm. say about the blues mm-hmm. i was like this is not geo do you guys send out pygmy filmmakers to film pygmies you know it's like yeah i, I want to learn that's you know that's that's what i can bring to it so we wound up making a film about the migration of african-americans from the south to the cities of the north during world war ii uh-huh. Uh, and then how they were left abandoned. And we told the whole story through blues musicians. Okay. So it became less about the blues and, mu- and much more about that. Mm-hmm. And, and also got nominated for an Oscar. That's fascinating. The death on the job, as you were describing it, it really <laughs> resonated like with current events um, with the tornado in uh, Kentucky that just yeah. happened. And like the, Amazon workers and then the camp like candle factory workers that were required to stay, even though those uh, yeah. warnings were happening. So it's um, 
I, do you do you know if that if your film is available anywhere right now? Um, I think all of the HBO films are available. Some, you know, mm-hmm. uh, they were selling them, but I think they're streaming a lot of them now. Yeah, because every once in a while I'll get an email from somebody. You know, I did a film called uh, at the time. Sheila called me for you know what happened is after the first couple of films, Sheila started calling me with ideas because she knew I wanted to be socially involved. Mm-hmm. And there was a rash of police suicides in New York City. And so she wanted to, to do a film about police suicide. Mm-hmm. And I looked into it and the suicides were around the Kern Commission was finding a lot of corruption. And I was like, I don't, I don't know if I want to tell that story. And she and she said, why? And I had met a, over the course of the other films, a couple of police officers and spent time in their cars. And, you know, and I said, you know, nobody's ever taken a really hard look at what it's like to be a police officer mm-hmm. these days. Mm-hmm. So why don't we do a film about looking at the world through the eyes of a, of a police officer, you know? And I'm, I can't remember what the initial impetus was, but I knew something was up. I knew that there were these neighborhoods where there was homicides and drugs and all that kind of stuff. And also in those neighborhoods, there were police officers who were acting abusively, you know, and, mm-hmm. you know, disregarding the constitution and all that kind of stuff. So we, I did some research and we hooked up with a guy who had, a, his job was, his philosophy was that after the first like six or eight months in a car, you're no longer a functioning human being because you see so much trauma, so much heartbreak, and you realize that you can't do anything about it. And you start to become cynical and you either drink yourself into to oblivion or you become a bad cop, you know? Okay. okay. And so he was secretly going around to, because if you're a police officer and something's bothering you, you can't tell your partner because your partner won't want to ride with you. And you can't tell your boss because if anything happened, they'd be liable. So they have to take you off the street, have to take your gun. Oh, wow. So cops, like they don't, you know, they keep it all inside and they drink. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we did a film and that that won the Robert Kennedy Award for Journalism, actually, I found. OK, OK. It's really surprising to me because, it, you know, in the film, you know, we have cops crying in their cars. I mean, it was just seriously heartbreaking looking at what in Memphis, what they had to deal with every day, how little support they had. In fact, I was riding with an Irish cop. He was from Ireland. He had played for Ireland in the World Cup. And uh, I rode with him for six months almost side by side. I had to take shotgun training and everything. And towards the end of the film, uh, uh, we made made a stop and we left the stop and we were really good friends by now. And he said to me, something happened there that was different. You know what it is? And I couldn't, could put my finger on it. And he got furious, like furious enough to want to punch me. That's how mad he was. And he drove the car to the curb and I said, all right, you got to tell me. And he said, she said, thank you. It was the first time in six months someone thanked him. We found a lost kid. Hmm. And that, so these life experiences, you know, you know, these, these films, it's just amazing. Yeah. What, what's the name of that film? It's called Memphis PD, War on the Streets. Okay. And, and HBO did a thing where they screened it, they screened it for free on PBS all across the country. Oh, wow. I think they sent out 500 copies to police departments that asked for copies of it. Oh, wow. And that that led to me working 
with law enforcement on a lot of shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, with PGA in Bolivia, with Peter Jennings, you know, we're okay. we exposing the fat, the, the fallacy. It's Olive. <laughs> Holding did, on Olive did Olive move the computer? <laughs> uh, uh, we were, expo- you know, exposing the fallacy of the war on drugs. You know, mm-hmm. in fact, uh, Mogadishu happened at the same time and everybody rushed overseas and Peter was, was with us in Bolivia and mm-hmm. in the New York Times, they wrote up while everybody was tripping over themselves to cover this story in Mogadishu, Peter went and did something important, exposing the war on drugs. So it was, it was pretty cool. Wow. That's so interesting. Once you started getting interested in like documentary photography and then film, were there documentary filmmakers that you were interested in and tried to emulate or like studied? You know, as part of the, the curriculum at the community college, I had to study both features. The teacher was really a documentary freak. Mm. And, and I had to look at, you know, Penny Baker's documentaries and uh, what's his face? Uh, I'm forgetting his name. Take it Follies. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. Anyway, he was mm-hmm. another genius. And then Michael Moore came along, you know. Yeah. And I liked the first couple of his films. I'm not that crazy about him anymore. Yeah. I think he now he just preaches to the converted, which I think is a <laughs> fatal flaw for a documentary filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but I didn't, I wasn't trying to emulate anybody really. Oh. I was just trying to, early on, I just sat up in the middle of the night and said, my, my job is not to make these films about me. My job is to let people ch- tell their story through me and, and then make it sexy, you know, make it, make it look good and make it sound good and make it you know, cool. But really they're the storytellers. I'm just the channeler. Mm-hmm. And from then on, it's been a blast. Mm-hmm. And that's really my approach every, every time out. Yeah. How do you win the trust of your documentary subjects to tell the story? I, I always insist that I get to go out and meet them before. I mean, I, I've had a strange career for a documentary filmmaker. All of my films, except for two or three, have been subsidized by a network. You know, mm-hmm. I worked for ABC, NBC, CBS, Fox, mm-hmm. PBS, you know, HBO, Showtime, all, Discovery, you, you name a channel, I've worked for them, right? Yeah. So they've all been commissioned. Uh, okay. And I, and I always insist that I get to go out first just by myself and meet the people and talk to them. Mm-hmm. And what I found really early on was that, you know, we don't listen to each other anymore. Nobody listens to any, especially now. It's worse than it ever was, but even back then, you know, and that as soon as they realized that I, I really sincerely wanted to hear their story that I didn't have an agenda. I didn't have a slant. I didn't have a bent. They they're on board. I mean, I've been with, you know, the president of Bolivia, uh, the DEA agents in the middle of the jungle with, you know, drug dealers with, uh, everybody, you know, I did a film a couple of years ago, uh, about the rise of hate in America under the last presidency, uh, Kim Kardashian and I just did a show uh, about the inequities of the prison system. Mm. Uh, but but it's always the people who tell the story, really. I'm just a the funnel. Yeah. Yeah. 
it's really interesting especially if like a, a lot of people you know sort of live on Twitter or Facebook or whatever and we kind of just get siloed right it's interesting to think of the idea that you can go into a community that is not yours and people will speak with you (laughs) because you're there to listen (laughs) to their story yeah i mean once once they say you you don't have a you know a tail and horns and you really want to listen they everybody opens up i I very rarely have run across somebody who didn't want to speak and usually that's somebody who's doing what they're not supposed to be doing, you know, and has gotten away with it and doesn't want to talk, you know? Right. The, the film that you did with Kim Kardashian, is that out already? Yeah. It's, yeah. and I think that's still streaming on oxygen. It's oh, okay. The justice project. Okay, cool. And she just got, you know, she just passed the baby bar. She, yeah. I have to say, I had just done four shows in a row for oxygen mm-hmm. uh, and the one I had just finished was about, you know, the rise of hate in America. So I was feeling my oats about, you know, telling stories that matter. Yeah. And I'm sitting on a beach in Santa Barbara and I get a call and it's the production company. And they say, you know, we want you. What happens is that the network knew me. They knew my work. The production company had a show. So the network says, we'll do it if you get Vince to do it. So the production oh, wow. calls me and I didn't know that that had happened that they needed me, you know, mm-hmm. and they said, we have this thing with Kim Kardashian, you know, she wants to do something about prison reform. And my opinion of Kim was based on, you know, what we see in the media. Sure. And, I, and I turned it down. I said, I'm not interested, you know, and they said, why? And I said, I don't want to be the voice for some celebrity who's going to do one thing in their life and then, you know, walk away. Mm-hmm. And they said, that's not Kim. It's not Kim. Will you do us the favor of just getting on the phone with her? Mm. So I got on the phone with her and she had me convinced in three minutes. She knew so much about the subject. Oh, wow. They already accomplished so much. I mean, she, they were trying to get the first step act passed for four years. Van Jones uh, yeah. they said it many times. And Kim had the guts to go into the White House and talk to Trump, despite what it would do to her career, you know, and, and got it passed in a day, you know, and mm. immediately 1,200 people got out of prison. Wow. And I, uh, so I was totally convinced. And, and the experience with her was amazing. She was, you know, we took her in the, in the house, like uh, working class houses in Philly. We took her into prisons all over the place. And the respect that the prisoners, they don't like that word, the incarcerated people had for mm. him was amazing. Mm. Because they know that she's a champion for that. And mm. she's sincere. So it was an amazing experience. Wow. Out of her, man. Passing the, the big, she wants to be a lawyer and mm-hmm. she wants to start a firm where all the other lawyers are incarcerated. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, so they can work the system from inside. Okay. Are there a good number of lawyers that are incarcerated? No. No, no not right now. Yeah. Yeah. But the, the most illuminating experience on that show was. Uh, there's a guy in D.C., right outside of D.C., Dr. Howard, and he he works at Georgetown. He teaches at Georgetown, and he started the Georgetown Prison Project, which is a, pro- a program that they run inside the D.C. jails where you can get a Georgetown degree. And it's not watered down. It's not tailored for, you know, 
uh, for people that are incarcerated, they, they put you through the ringer. It's a real Georgetown program. Mm -hmm. uh, and we took him to a room to talk to the people that are in that program. And we, and it was like out of Oz. We will go into a room and there's 40 guys in orange jumpsuits and knit hats. Mm -hmm. And what's unusual about this program, it's the only program in the country that's co-ed. There were also like a dozen women also, mm -hmm. you know, and Kim spoke for a minute and then she started taking questions and the questions were brilliant. You know, one person after another would stand up and say, this is really great what you're doing, but you need to look at this, you know, and they kept tasking her, you know, to do stuff. And she kept responding and it was amazing. And then I, then when it was over, they all kind of surrounded me and, uh, and the cameraman over there. And they wanted to know about what we're doing. And I made friends with some of them and, and every person in that room, had committed a capital crime, had either murdered someone, you know, uh, or, or, or some other horrendous act. Mm -hmm. It all, you know, basically rehabilitated themselves. And when I took the show, you know, the central question was, should, because it's easy, the first step act was about people that had bad drug convictions. It's easy to get those people out of prison. You know, right. everybody says, all right, that's not fair. He, just, he was 15 years old, you know. But it's much harder when you say this kid shot somebody and killed him when he was 15. But then you meet a 40-year-old man who's been inside all that time, who yeah. has unbelievable remorse for what he did. It totally, it totally changed my mind and changed my life, actually. Mm -hmm. And that's, it's, you know, that's why I do these things. Mm. Oh, that's fascinating. So let's talk about the Kennedy detail which is streaming now, like I said, on Amazon Prime, Apple TV, and Discovery Plus. How did that film come about? And what can people, it's the Secret Service agents who are with JFK, which is uh, pretty wild <laughs> like to, to think about. So how, how did that film come about? And what was the process of making that? One of the agents was writing a book. Uh, he was on that tour, but he wasn't in Dallas that day. And I think a lot of times like the person who missed the action winds up telling the story, you know, yeah. and, and he wrote it with a, a female correspondent uh, and the book was optioned by a production company okay. documentary and they called me mm -hmm. and, uh, and they said, you know, we're going to take the secret service guys who were JFK the day he was killed back in Dallas and they've never spoken about it before. And they've never gone back together before. And I was like, yeah, wow. and, you know, because, who wasn't fascinated about that, right? Mm -hmm. And there was a weird thing. There's a guy, a, a conspiracy theorist who blames the agents for the assassination. And his name is Vince DiPirio. Oh my God. <laughs> so I Dallas and I, I introduced myself to the agents and they're all really surly with me and, you know, standoffish. And, and, and I, so I asked this woman who wrote the book, why? And she tells me about this guy and I go, oh, I'm not him, <laughs> you know, I'm not him. And then what happened was uh, the guy who planned the motorcade when Lawson mm -hmm. had had a stroke and I, I brought him into the room first. We had a, you know, the idea was, this is a little filmmaking inside baseball. Yeah. The network had flown down, right? So I'm trying to interview these guys about the most traumatic experience in their life. And there's the production company execs are there. And then there's network execs. And we have always a lot of times we have like a, a video village, which is a, 
a bunch of monitors where they can watch the interviews. And I thought, you know, these guys are going to be critiquing me the whole time while I'm doing this. And I don't need that pressure. So I went over to the agents and I said, you know, there's going to be monitors where you can watch Wynn's interview. You should go into that room knowing that the execs wouldn't say a bad word about me if the agents were in the room, right? So I did uh, Wynn's interview. And it was an it was an eye opener because he had had a serious stroke and he helped in and he couldn't speak. And then as soon as we started the interview, he focused. Mm. He told the story for the first time. But what was really remarkable was the second he was done, the other agents burst in and started hugging him. And I went, "Oh my God, these guys have never heard each other's mm. feelings about that day." And man, what an experience! To stand up in that window, you know, we got a, a car that looked just like the car, we turned it on the Elm Street, and they were standing in the window, were shooting over their shoulders, they were watching. And, you know, you realize a bunch of things. Any 14-year-old kid from Kentucky could have made the shot, you know. Right. And it was, it was really illuminating. Wow. So you, did, so you um, flew down to Dallas, I assume. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then did it there. Wow. And that was nominated for an Emmy, that song. Oh, wait. I think I didn't know that one. <laughs> yeah, I actually had three Emmys. And oh, okay. Nominations. Oh, but okay, great. And then it became really Someone good needs to update your IMDb. <laughs> I really don't care anymore. I know. <laughs> Not about that for me, you know. No, I know. <laughs> um, so that one was nominated for an Emmy. Um, you have, uh, what, what are your other Emmys from? I have an Emmy for a show called the Kids Who Kill. Okay. Uh, it's really familiar. Yeah. I'd have to go in and look at the, what the no, other it's okay. <laughs> it's okay. Maybe you can send me a picture of the. <laughs> um, that's, that's a very. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. My classes by putting the two in front of the, this, you know, this is who you're dealing with. That's amazing. That's amazing. You so you teach um, documentary film at uh, what school? San Francisco Film School. San Francisco Film School. Yeah, it's a great place too. It's, it reminds me a lot of Goddard in a way. Yeah. Yeah, because it's this crazy mix of like half my students are vets. Really. Yeah, which is really interesting. That's and there's, you know, I think I've taught five classes and I, I don't think in the five classes I've had more than like 10 white students, white males. Everybody, you know, it's the most diverse. It's really a fantastic group of people. And to hear their stories and, and see what they're interested in, the stories they want to tell, mm-hmm. help them get there. has been so rewarding. So, wow. many- so how do you shepherd their stories like and they're the the, what are you teaching them in your classes i I do a couple things you know like i I have a bitch about art schools and my bitch is can i say bitch yeah yeah we totally (laughs) art school and my bitch is you know they feed your desire to like tell the world who you are and then they dump you out on the street and you don't know what to do, and especially with film schools. So part of what I'm teaching, part of what I do is I bring in people in the business, really big people, like the head lawyer for Netflix or, you know, the guy who used to run Cinemax, who all went to film school to be directors, and none of them are directors intentionally. 
you know, just to let them know that there's a bunch of different avenues to get your foot, foot in the door. You don't have to be a director. But then the other thing is like, we talk over and over about listening to each other and about how it's not about you and how you don't want it to preach to the converted, which a lesson I had to learn little by little, you know, uh, and you, you want to invite people who may not agree with you into your story so that you can change their minds, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. that should be your approach. And that's basically, and then I, you know, so they wind up calling me at midnight, you know, I have an idea for something you want to talk, you know, can I talk to you? And, and, uh, and I love it. I love mm. just, just helping them because they have so much to say and what they, what they're going to say is going to be important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. So so the movie that keeps like popping into my head, the documentary that keeps popping into my head is um, Harlan County, USA, um, which I only saw in the last like year. I think <laughs> my husband watched it on his own and then he uh, said, we have to watch this. This is like one of the best movies I've ever seen. <laughs> and, so, um, and it's it's not a community that I know at all. And um, I, you know, didn't know what, what it was going to be about or anything, but I think the, the filmmaker, she, she just, she, she let the story unfold um, and cared (laughs) enough about her subjects to let the story unfold without a pre-existing agenda and I do think that's like a very powerful way to tell a story um and and I like what you say about not preaching to the converted (laughs) I mean that's kind of where we what happens um when we're just like on Twitter or whatever (laughs) and I'm 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 a hundred percent guilty of it like just sort of being in the, my own echo chamber but but yeah no that's that film in particular is genius i mean she's we we, we actually were doing robot commercials at the same time barbara and i i okay. was doing alan iverson she was doing shack oh wow yeah but uh yeah she's, and I, I you're right i mean the it's the dialogue has never been so stratified as it is now you know and i think that what gets lost when that happens, when both sides go to their corner, you know, mm-hmm. entrenched is empathy gets lost. Yeah. And somehow growing up in the neighborhood I grew up in, I, I got the gift of empathy. I don't know how or where or what, but I think that's what's propelled me the whole time. And I think that often, even amongst friends, I find them saying some things that just, they, they just lack empathy. Mm. Memorial Day, I, I posted a thing about, you know, everybody who served with me and everybody I know who served, including my friends in blue, you know, uh, and someone wrote a, a really good friend, one of my oldest friends wrote, you know, well, maybe they shouldn't hear the drum and the, the you know, the the bugle and, and not glorify war. And, you know, like, and I just wrote, like, I love you, man, but that is so clueless, you know, who's mm fights our wars now who our volunteer army is you know mm-hmm. it's people that, that need a job yeah any other way to go to college that, you know yeah. and i think that that and he, he he you know he's a really great guy and he called me back and he said you're right that was so you know devoid of empathy you know mm-hmm. i wasn't thinking 
Mm-hmm. I think that's really the problem. Yeah, it is hard in like the current sort of discourse to have a <laughs> an empathetic and you know it's it's hard to have a conversation that is considers a lot of different sides i i'm reluctant to post stuff <laughs> on on facebook or or twitter or whatever um because because of that because i'm like oh no what if this gets misconstrued or whatever um because i have people in my life that have like very different worldviews um and um i remember I remember my feeling after after Trump got elected and I, w- I felt so um, uh, confused and lost. And um, I, the, the thing that I felt was I because my work has been to tell family stories, to help families tell their stories and. I'm like, okay, so what can I do in my life <laughs> that, that, that like with, with what, with what I'm able to do that would help the world <laughs> a little bit. And um, the thing that I kept coming back to was telling deeper stories, to, like help people tell deeper stories because I was so confused with like how red the middle of the country was and blue you know I'm in New York right and like so it just felt I was like oh my god like I had no idea about this whole swath of political (laughs) you know like I, I don't know how widespread it was I guess so yeah so I do think that is the power of really sitting down and doing storytelling and letting people have their voice. And so that's kind of what it that's like what I try to do here and the podcast. And yeah. Yeah. It's a, you know, I, I knew Trump was going to get elected. First time I heard him speak, I knew he was going to be president because you know, I come from that class of people that voted for him. Okay. The reason is, you know, when I was growing up, you could get a job in a factory in Philly or New York or Detroit. And in 30 years, you'd have a, a pension, a full right. pension. You would have supported your family with that one income, just one income. Yeah. Probably had a house on a lake or down the shore or something. You know, you knew if you sat down at the breakfast table, your kids' lives were going to be better than yours because the schools were decent and they can get into college. And over the last 40 years, it's all been stripped away. And it hasn't really made a difference who was in the White House. The decline has kept going. And so there's this vast number of people in the country who don't believe either party anymore you know and i'm a screaming radical liberal yeah i think that you know until the until the democratic party gets back to its roots the union people that built it the people that that have been left behind and and you know it's great to worry about the big things like climate change and you know but in the meantime the Supreme Court was stolen. You know, the, the Republicans have now made it. They actually have set up an apparatus now that can invalidate an election. Mm-hmm. If they mm-hmm. don't, you know, there's plenty of reporting on that. I don't have to be the person that says it, but it's true. Yeah. And I think that 
the Democratic Party has lost its soul. And until it regains it, until it regains, refines its empathy, it's going to be wandering. We're going to be wandering around in the woods. Mm-hmm. Those people need to be addressed. Mm-hmm. Arthur Miller said, you know, in uh, this great play, attention must be paid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so you work, so you work with your students now on bringing their, like their stories or the stories they're interested in telling uh, forward the documentary stories. Um, and I, I love that your classes are diverse um, because that is super important <laughs> for people who, for people to tell stories from their own communities. Um, I, I mean, you know, I, do, I don't think it's, I think people can tell stories from other communities as well. Um, but I also think it's important for people to have opportunities to tell their stories from within. And so in the documentary world, what would you like to see in the next like 10 years shifting or? It's the best time ever to be a documentary filmmaker because there are all these new venues, you know, and they're all screaming for product. And, and so they're much more willing to entertain things that they wouldn't have entertained before. But also what I tell my students is, you know, there's been a gigantic shift in the headspace in Los Angeles regarding diversity over the last five. I mean, Oscar so white. Yeah. Was a, a great, I mean, all my friends were pulling their hair out and befuddled by it. And, and I, it was so brilliant because it just relentlessly shone a light on, you know, how not diverse everything was. And now yeah. when you've been through the streaming services, there's all kinds of stuff on. Mm-hmm. And I think what's going to happen. I mean, I know what's going to happen because I can see it already is we're going to get documentaries from voices. We we've been, you know, kept from hearing from. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and now those voices have access, you know, and what's really great is they're not just doing it. Like I judged the documentaries for a long time for the Oscars and for okay. the Guild, you know, uh-huh. and I would, and you would see some of those films, but towards the end, when I stopped right, right about when I got too busy to do it anymore, I started seeing films from these communities. I never, you know, I, there was a great, beautiful film about a, a three kids from a Cambodian street gang in uh, Contra Costa County, South of San Francisco, who went back to Cambodia uh, as a lark, you know, to see their roots and, and it, and it changed, totally changed their lives, you know, mm-hmm. and those kinds of things are thrilling. You know, I saw a film done by an autistic kid about another autistic kid called Billy the Kid, an amazing documentary. Wow. Uh, yeah. I just think it's going to be awesome. Nice. That's great. So what projects do you have uh, coming up? The next thing I'm going to do is Hopefully, I'm keeping my fingers crossed because you uh-huh. never know, but it looks like it's going to go, is Clint Hill, who was one of the Secret Service men uh, okay. who was that day. He was assigned to Jackie. So he was 28 years old. He was on the Eisenhower detail, but he wasn't working in the White House, which is, you know, the pinnacle where every Secret Service agent wants to be. And he gets a call, and the call is, you know, uh, you're going you're gonna to be in the White House. And he thinks, ah, I'm going to be guarding the president. And they bring him into a room and he's 28 and there's this 31 year old drop dead beautiful woman. And they say, here's your, you're going to be responsible for Jackie. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, she's one of the most popular mysterious, you know, figures in American history. 
And he wants to tell the story of his four years with her, mm-hmm. which, you know, so, so he's the lens for the, mm-hmm. the you know, what Jackie's years in the white house were, were like, and, uh, and he's an amazing man, you know, he wow. jumped from the back of the car and tried to save her and all that kind of stuff. Went through alcoholism, came out the other end. Uh, he wants to tell a story. So I think that's what we're doing next. Oh, fascinating. Did he, um, was he part of the Kennedy detail? Yeah, yeah his job was to the, the, the be with Jackie. This is with Jackie. Okay, great. And he had a particular, JFK, you know, uh, had a, he had a lever in his car so he could raise and lower himself, you know, okay. so people could see him. And he didn't want Secret Service agents all over the car in Dallas because there were wanted posters up all over the city, you know, wanted dead or alive, you know. I mean, there was a lot of hate for him. And he just wanted to put on a show, you know. Uh, and so Clint wasn't on the car when the shots ran out. Right. And the car speeded up immediately. And he ran in the footage of you. If you ever see this Zapruder film, he runs and he jumps on the back of the car. And at 70 miles an hour, they went to Parkman and he was just hanging on to the back of the convertible the whole time. Oh, my God. And he always felt like if he had been on the car, maybe he would have taken the shot, you know, mm. never know. Wow. That's fascinating. Did he write a book about it or? Well, him and the woman who uh, they're together now, who, who was partners in the first book, they've written three books together about okay. his Jackie, all New York Times bestsellers. Mm-hmm. They're doing a fourth book right now. Wow, that's so fascinating. We're sort of coming to time, but like, I'm, I'm so, I'm curious if you want to talk about it. You had said earlier that growing up in the neighborhood you did in Philly uh, gave you a lot of empathy, um, or somehow you developed empathy through growing up there. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Do you have a story that? like an early experience that made you realize what empathy was to you? I, I had a, a few, you know, one that someday I want to do something with it, you know, but there was a, you know, I lived in a street that was so narrow that cars can only come down one side. And if they parked, they had to park half on the sidewalk. Okay. And if cars were parked on the sidewalk, it was really difficult to even get out of the street and it dead ended on a railroad, right? Okay. And in the middle of this working class block, blue collar block, where all the guys, you know, got up in the morning to go to work, stopped at the corner bar and loaded up on shots, went to work, came home, hit the bar again, you know, and there was wife beating and, you know, there was all kinds of craziness in this blue collar neighborhood. In the middle of that block, there was a lesbian couple. Hmm. And the one of them was her name we called her hawaiian rose i, I don't know why that was her nickname right mm-hmm. but i remember there was a guy across the street who used to who used to beat his wife you know and he was a pretty big guy and one day rose knocked on her door and said to him if i hear her scream again i'm gonna come in here and i'm gonna slit your throat mm. and he didn't know what to say. And she said, you know, and if you have a problem with that, we can step out in the street right now. And I was like, this gay woman is the best man on my block. Mm-hmm. You know, and it just made me like. Think I should look past prejudices. I should look past what I'm told the labels are 
and yeah. the person. Yeah. At what age were you when that happened? 13, maybe 14. Yeah. That's super formative. Yeah. <laughs> as an experience. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you so much for talking with me today, Vince. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot more that we can talk about. <laughs> when you were at Goddard, were there were there people that you connected with that you're that you're either still in touch with or that you just remember like having a specific connection with there? Oh yeah, I mean there was something about you know living in the Northwoods uh, through the winter, you know. Uh, it made, it made people really bond, you know, yeah. and I still have friends. I just two days ago hooked up with somebody that he, you know, he's, I guess he went to Sundance. I went to Sundance and the woman who used to run Sundance had a birthday. So I wrote on Facebook, happy birthday. And he was like, are you the same Vince? You know, and we, and now we're friends, you know, on Facebook. Oh, but cool. yeah, yeah, it was, there was something really formative about it. And it's a shame that, you know, it, it, that part of the experiment, the RUP program didn't last long. I mean, I know people have come afterwards and had great experiences with the uh, graduate program, which we used to call the adultery program because all these people would come in for like three weeks and yeah. you know, there are all kinds of shenanigans, you know, uh, but, uh, but yeah, what an, what an amazing time, what a place. It was really formative. And the, and the big thing was that there Talk about empathy, you know. I could have easily fallen through the cracks in any other college. Mm-hmm. But at Goddard, people made a point to grab a hold of me and say, we understand you're angry, we understand where you're coming from, you know, but you have something to say and you're never going to be able to say it unless you lose that chip off your shoulder. Mm. You know, and I don't think that would have happened anywhere else. No, I don't think, I don't think people would have um, necessarily given you the chance or thought about the chip on your shoulder (laughs) yeah that's that's awesome thank you so much for talking with me today Vince this is great thank you thank you for listening to this week's episode for more information about anything we talked about please check the show notes this podcast is a project of Goddard Alumni Council It is produced, hosted, and edited by Amanda Faye Laxon. If you are interested in being a guest on the podcast or would like more information, please visit goddardalumni.com slash podcast. Please subscribe to the podcast in your favorite listening app so you never miss an episode. See you next time.